Hello, I'm really thrilled to be able to come and talk to you today about my new kind of new passion, and that is I want to look at evil women. And today, this is a series of six lectures that I'll be giving on different evil women. Today's one is about Eve's evil legacy. But before I start talking about Eve, I want to draw attention to some of the difficulties and tensions involved in presenting a series of lectures on evil women. I think the most obvious is well, what is meant by evil and women? And what happens when these two concepts are placed together? Now, two questions immediately arise. First, what do we mean when we talk about evil? Now, this is going to be developed and elaborated in the next series of six talks. Briefly, however, my reflections on evil are going to circle around issues of human agency, including acts of perpetrating, maintaining or ignoring harms to sentient life. In this sense, evil is always relational. It's not abstract. I agree with philosopher Claudia Card when she writes that many things are disappointing, undesirable, or just bad without being evil. In contrast, evil actions inflict losses or deprivations to what is basic to a tolerable existence. Now, this approach is going to be nuanced as these lectures progress and as we turn to different genres of evil, including its primary, witching, monstrous, sexual, institutionalized and radical forms of evil. In each lecture, I'm going to be asking, why has the label evil been assigned to this individual or group? Is it a fitting characteristics? And are there grey areas. Given that I've only been allocated six lectures, I'm going to have to be extremely selective in my choices. And so we're not going to be exploring so-called natural evils such as pain or natural disasters that kill and maim thousands of human and non-human animals, as well as destroying environments. These are often believed to result from human vices or to be punishments for transgressing, transgressing the commands of a deity. I've also been forced to ignore a universe of very human evils. Girls and women have played prominent roles in some of the greatest atrocities of the 20th century. We just have to think of the undeniable evil of the Holocaust, girls and women turning a blind eye to the deportation of their neighbours to labour and death camps. The Rwandan genocide, which resulted in the first conviction in an international court of a woman for rape and genocide. The conflict in the former Yugoslavia, where women oversaw torture camps or the war in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where women actively participated in over 40% of the sexual assaults. Rather, I'm going to be paying attention to the evils carried out by a small group of individuals with moral agency. These include, they include iconic women such as Eve, fictional ones such as a cruel nurse, and flesh and blood women who are responsible for inflicting harms on others. As we will see, these evils not only harm the immediate victims, but they also have wider cultural effects. 
evil female agency can rebound on the wider community of girls and women. That is, it contributes to the oppression of girls and women, the denigration of feminine powers, and the imposition of controls over female sexuality, intellect, and autonomy. Now, if the first question posed by my lecture series on evil women is, what is evil, and involves the narrowing of this concept to a discrete, six discrete case studies, the second is, well, what is meant by evil women? It may seem perverse to ask if there is such a thing as women. Trans and non-binary voices must be acknowledged, especially since they have been sidelined until recent decades. It is equally important to point to the fact that femaleness is the majority agenda. Too often, the label women assumes a Western, white, heteronormative, middle-class, adult female. This is where the insights of Kimberley Crenshaw, a legal academic and one of the founders of critical race theory, are invaluable. In her influential article entitled Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex, published as long ago as 1989, Crenshaw introduces the concept of intersectionality. She points out that the focus of white feminists in the West on the most privileged group members, that is other white women, marginalizes those who are multiply burdened. Furthermore, she argues, it is just not enough to simply add black women to an already established analytical structure. This is because, her words, the intersectional experience is greater than the sum of racism and sexism. Now, if we apply Crenshaw's arguments or her insights um, to our interest in evil women, attention must be paid not simply to gender, but to the compounding effects of gender, race, class, caste, religion, disability, sexuality, age, generation, and so on and so on. I hope that by focusing on six concrete case studies and by adopting an intersectional approach, I will be able to avoid essentializing the concept of woman. The evil women I will be spotlighting exist within variable intersectionalities of identity and power relations. All are imagined or framed in relational terms as white, although we may want to ask, well, was Eve white? However, it is not possible to separate out their femaleness from their class. This is going to be seen as very important when we um, look at discussions about Amelia Dyer, the prolific uh, baby killer, or uh, Myra Hindley, the sadistic killer. Sexuality, Matahari, age, Snow White's evil stepmother, and occupation, a nurse. Finally, I am inspired by French philosopher Michel Foucault's genealogical approach, which seeks to unearth power, the power relations involved in the production and circulation of knowledges about the concept of evil. I ask, what is evil? What is woman? What economies of knowledge produce the evil woman? 
What role is played by religion, law, psychiatry, and other disciplining institutions? What are the official and unofficial discourses circulating around evil women? How does the evil woman appear as a material presence in history? Throughout all these lectures, evil is conceived of as a discursive construct, by which I mean that it is used in strategic ways to give meaning to ideologies and practices. So after this rather long preamble, let me start with the Jewish and Christian creation myth, in which the first woman, Eve, introduced evil into paradise, leading to the banishment of humanity and indeed all life from the Garden of Eden. There are other, of course, wayward women in the Bible, including Mary Magdalene, Delilah, Salome, and Lot's wife, but none compete with the myth of Eve. Her curiosity and disobedience to God's command loosened evil into the world. The story is familiar. Its bare bones involve Eve being tempted by Satan, who appears in the form of a serpent, to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which Adam had been forbidden to touch. According to Genesis 3, 6, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. The tree of knowledge of good and evil is often referred to as an apple tree, possibly because St. Jerome translated the Bible into Latin, and he used the word malum, which is the Latin word for both evil and apple. Some Jewish scholars, however, contend that the fruit was grape or pomegranate. Muslim scholars maintain it was a banana. The precise identity of the tree makes no difference. Eve's plucking, eating, and sharing of the fruit was what created time, and therefore history. Not only were the serpent and Adam cursed, but a special punishment was reserved for women as the descendants of Eve, the original Eve. Genesis 3.16 tells us that God told Eve that, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Subsequently then, the myth of Eve's monstrous agency has been employed to justify patriarchal ideologies and practices. Now, since ancient times, this story of Eve's curse has led her and her female descendants to be reviled. In the book of Ecclesiastes, also known as the book of Shirek, uh, written in the early second century BCE, Shirek contends that sin began with a woman and because of her, we all die. The Christian church fathers complained that Eve beguiled her husband by pleasures, thus proving to be an enemy rather than a helpmate. Um, de culture terminarum, uh, Tertullian uh, insisted that as descendants of Eve, women were the devil's gateway. He addressed women directly, charging that 
You are the unsealer of that forbidden tree. You are the first deserter of the divine law. You are she who persuaded him whom the devil was not valiant enough to attack. You destroyed so easily God's image, man. On account of your desert, that is death, even the son of God had to die. And do you think about adorning yourself over and above your tunics of skins? Similarly, uh, Christosostom maintained that the woman taught the man once and ruined all. And this was why he contended that women should be forbidden to teach. For Jerome, uh, Draconitus, Thomas Aquinas, Martha Luther, and so on and so on, to list just a few, Eve's story was proof of females, the female inferior, even evil nature. In more recent centuries, Eve's original sin has been employed to justify violence against women. An obvious example of this is during the trials of witches in the pre-modern period, where women were accused of being the instrument through which the devil wrecked havoc. Although boys and men were also accused of witch accused of witchcraft, most victims were the descendants of Eve. It was girls and women, many menopausal ones, who were attacked, tortured, killed in the name of the Holy One. They were also trapped in this kind of impossible tension. On the one hand, witches were castigated for being feminine, weak, insane, while on the other hand, they were formidably powerful with duplicitous intellects and sexualities that could deny access of entire communities to divine love. They were diabolical eaves. Witch trials were an extreme use of the myth of Eve, but even mild rhetorical uses of Eve's name have served to thwart female prospects and progress. In 19th century Britain, for example, Eve was an excuse to confine women to domestic spheres. A poem by Christina Rossetti portrays Eve musing about her sin. Part of the poem reads, as a tree, my sin stands to darken all lands. Death is the fruit it bore. The tree of life was ours, tree twelvefold fruited, most lofty tree that flowers, most deeply rooted. I chose the tree of death. I, Eve, sad mother of all who must live. I, not another, plucked bitterest fruit, while the serpent in the dust grinned an evil grin. In her advice book called Womankind, novelist Charlotte M. Young was equally harsh, maintaining that I had no hesitation in declaring my full belief in the inferiority of women, nor that she brought it upon herself. I believe, as entirely as any other truth which has been from the beginning, that women was created as a helpmeet to man. When the test came, whether the two human beings would pay allegiance to God or to the tempter, it was the woman who was the first to fall and to draw her husband into the same transgression. Hence, her punishment of physical weakness and subordination. 
Eve's trans trans transgression. Eve's transgression was used to justify female subordination. In the words of Southern clergyman James Henley Thornwell, women should be refused the rights of the citizen on the grounds that they had first tasted evil. It comes as no surprise, therefore, that 19th century British, European and American texts routinely pitted Eve, the harbinger of evil, against their other preoccupation, that is, the angel in the house. Any number of iconic texts, texts elaborate this view, but it appears even in the most prosaic Victorian texts. Take Thomas Slender's Women and Their Ways, published in London Society, an illustrated magazine of light and amusing literature for the hours of relaxation in 1867. His article starts with the words, from the day when Eve first came before Adam, a woman fair and graceful spouse, down to the present time in which we live, women has been both the blessing and the curse of, human, of mankind. She has been the cause of strife and ruin, of misery and bloodshed amongst nations, and her domestic life, not infrequently, has been the discordant and jarring element. Yet, she's also the very type and embodiment of all grace and virtue, the source and centre of peace and reconciliation, and one gracious influence which softens and humanises mankind. So Eve, evil, and the um, angel in the house. The Reverend Gordon Kelthorpe, vicar of St. Um, Augustine's in Highbury, concurred. He observed that Eve had what no other woman ever had, experienced both of a state of innocence and a state of sin. And yet again, throughout the whole of a long and checkered life, she must have felt the keen sorrow of looking back to the brightness of paradise and of looking down upon the spreading darkness of evil, which she herself had been the means of introducing into the world. Calthorpe even blamed woman, blamed Eve, for the fact that her son Cain murdered her other son Abel. Thus, murder was, in Calthorpe's words, the ripened fruit of her transgression in the Garden of Eden. In the last decade of the 19th century, debates about Eve's actions in bringing evil into the world were discussed in the context of Darwinian thought. Was it possible to reconcile the story of creation and the fall with science? Many theologians then and now, in fact, have observed that there are actually two stories of creation in the book of Genesis. The first story was egalitarian and involved the simultaneous creation of the two sexes. Male and female, he created them, Genesis 1.27. Some current uh, theologians have taken this to mean that the first human was a hermaphrodite, According to scriptural historian Phyllis Tribble, the word Adam, which scholars usually translate as Adam, actually refers to a creature that is gender neutral, neither male nor female. I return to these modern debates near the end of this talk. In contrast, the second creation story states that Eve was created from Adam's rib or his side. 
for late 19th and early 20th century theologians, it was actually possible to reconcile the first account of creation with evolutionary theory. A second account was much less easy for them to accommodate. As historian Dermot uh, Finnegan points out, this was not just a case of theological scruples. It struck at the heart of important theological truths, including monogamous marriage, the indissoluble and for some sacramental character of the marital marriage union, the subordinate position of wives to husbands, and the designation of the domestic sphere as women's allotted place. After all, after God had fashioned Eve out of Adam's rib, he said, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be as one flesh. And God's subsequent curse of Eve included the phrase that, Thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. In other words, if you take away the belief that Eve was created from Adam's body, and if you paper over Eve's responsibility for bringing evil into the world, then the subordination of women to patriarchy becomes less defensible. Denying Eve's transgression also undermines St. Paul's prohibition against women of women speaking in church or teaching the scriptures, which were important prohibitions for Presbyterians, Catholics, Orthodox religions, for example. At a time when women's rights were at the heart of political debates, conservatives maintained that there were significant risks in reinterpreting biblical texts. In the words of George Tyrrell, Jesuit priest and prominent British Catholic, rationalizing the biblical account of Eve's creation and her central role in the fall threatened the primitive and divine institution of marriage, the belief in its elevation to the dignity of a sacrament typical of the relation of the church to Christ, her head and master. All this is relegated to the region of myth. He warned that if the church ignored the creation story of Eve and her role in the fall, then marriage and the mastership of the husband in that relation would simply become an ancient superstition. Such anxieties were linked to fears about Eve's sexuality and by extension the transgressive sexuality of all women. It was only after eating the forbidden fruit that Adam and Eve realized they were naked. As John Milton made clear in Paradise Lost, immediately after tempting Adam to eat the forbidden fruit, Eve seduced him. It did not, does not or did not need a genius of the stature of Freud, for example, to note that the snake is a phallic symbol and the apple a woman's breast. Now, admittedly, not all 19th century com commentators accepted the sexual symbolism of serpent and apple. And my favorite rebuttal appears in an article in, entitled The Coming of Sin authored by Alexandra Brown, published in the London Quarterly Review, 1903. Brown scoffed at some anthropologists who, raking in the slums of heathen desoluteness, believed, 
believed that the serpent was a symbol of the phallic principle, an attempt to foster the sexual reference into our narrative. He contended that such interpretations grotesquely fail. He was equally unequally unconvinced by the belief that the serpent symbol originated in the Bacchanic orgies, meaning that the tree whose fruit was eaten was divine and Eve's sin was drunkenness. Rather, he contended, we are on a broad, broader and surer grounds if we keep to the simple conception that the serpent is a symbolic of man's animal wisdom or instinctive prudence divorced from the inner voice of God. The serpent must represent a power which can make its voice heard in Eve's soul. This was why the serpent chose to address Eve first. She was closer to the animalistic or instinctual life. It was an argument endorsed by a person signing himself GMA in an article entitled Eve and the Serpent or Some Modern Gems of Thought in Their Original Setting, published in the Wesleyan Methodist Magazine, 1887. He asked, why did the enemy of souls choose in the first instance to address himself not to the father, but to the mother of the human race? Was it because the stolid mind of the man was less liable to be beguiled than the finer susceptibilities of the woman whose whole nature quivered with sympathy and potential appreciousness, appreciativeness, to whom, as to so many of her descendants, the beautiful seems right by force of beauty? In other words, not only was Eve the weaker vessel, she was also vain and easily swayed by beautiful things, as were all members of her sex. The result, though, was a catastrophic darkness and banishment from paradise, since, as he wrote, if the darkness in thee, if the light in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? However, there's another side to the story. Eve, of course, has her defenders. 19th century proponents of women's rights frequently addressed the obstacle that Eve's original sin posed for their cause. As leading suffragist Armisalyn Garrett Fawcett complained in an 1878 article on the future of English women. Too often, she wrote, our opponents based their remarks on such observations as Adam was first made, then Eve and appear to believe that no one would be tempted to complete the implied analogy and say Adam first had household suffrage, then Eve, or Adam first studied medicine, then Eve. The most influential 19th century activist to tackle Eve's legacy was Elizabeth Caddy Stanton. Her two-volume collaborative work, The Woman's Bible, 1895 and 1898, um, set out to reimagine the Bible from a female and even feminist, although she would not have used um, that term, perspective. For Stanton, the traditional telling of evil, Eve's evil was an all too familiar example of ancient misogyny. The analogy of Eve being open to evil was the story on which, she wrote, all the enemies of women rest their battering rams to prove her inferiority 
she complained that the Bible teaches that women brought sin and death into the world, that she precipitated the fall of the race. Marriage for her was to be a condition of bondage. And in silence and subjection, she was to play the role of a dependent on man's bounty for all her material wants and for all the information she might desire on the vital questions of the hour she was commanded to ask her husband at home. The biblical story did not have to be told that way, Stanton maintained. Eve's action on plucking and eating the apple could equally be seen as revealing Eve's superior intelligence and her inquiring spirit. These were traits to be commended, not disparaged. Furthermore, like some other theologians at the time, Stanton took inspiration from the fact that there were two, not one, our creation story in the book of Genesis. That is, simultaneous creation and the tale of the rib. She insisted that the first version was the true one, since there was something sublime in bringing order out of chaos. It was wholly inconsistent with a petty surgical operation. Now, in recent decades, um, feminist theories of ancient theological texts have elaborated on the two creation arguments. For example, um, Phyllis Tribble notes that in Hebrew literature, the central concerns of a unit often appear at the beginning and at the end of an exclusion device. Genesis 2, Genesis 2 shows this structure. The creation of man first and women last constitutes a ring composition whereby the two creations are parallel. Indeed, she goes further, claiming that in the ancient texts, Eve is the more intelligent one, the more aggressive one, and the one with greater sensibilities. When she views the tree of knowledge of evil, good and evil, she assesses it as food, as beauty, and source of wisdom. As such, the initiative and the decision are hers alone. There is no consultation with her husband. In contrast, the man is a silent, passive and bland recipient. His one act is belly orientated and it is an act of crescendence, not of initiative. John Phillips's Eve, the History of an Idea, uh, makes the important point that prioritizing the second creation account over the first is a political act. It's a political and it's a gendered decision. He maintains that if the woman is created simultaneously with man, she is perfect also and shares equally in the work of lordship. If she is created after him, she is somewhat less than perfect and belongs to the realm over which he exerts lordship. In preferring the second account, then, interpreters prefer an Eve who is religiously, socially, politically, and sexually under the control of her husband. Today, the legacy of Eve and the fall continues to denigrate the lives of girls and women, as well as other minoritized groups. One extreme example is what is called Eve teasing in Bangladesh. This refers to the practice of young men sexually humiliating, abusing, assaulting and raping women in public places or offices. 
It is a form of sexual harassment that has led to incredible suffering, even suicides. According to a survey carried out by the Bangladesh National Women's Lawyers Association, 90% of girls aged 10 to 18 have been eaved teased. The term Eve teasing is important since it places responsibility for sexual harassment and molestation on the victims. They are Eve's descendants and so deserving their abuse. Eve teasing is a practice that justifies itself by alluding to the original sin. Still others turn the evil around, divesting it of its sting by eroticizing Eve's actions. The badness of evil can be seen to be sexy. This is common in 20th century imaginary. Eve has become the iconic image of sensual pleasures, popular in advertisements and popular culture. In the West, seeing a woman with an apple or peering coyly from behind a tree immediately signals Eve the temptress. One of the most explicit of these can be seen in the opening credits of the TV show Desperate Housewives, which plays on uh, one of Lucas's cranachs of the elders Adam and Eve paintings of the 16th century. It starts with Adam and Eve standing together in Eden, naked except for vine leaves covering their genitals. As a malevolent serpent hands Eve an apple, a giant apple crushes, falls down and crushes Adam. The screen immediately shows the sign, Desperate Housewives. This Eve is sexy and dangerous. She is also not worthy of veneration. Once again, we are killing Eve. In conclusion, well, the story of Eve's decisive contribution to the fall of humanity has been instrumental in the myriad evils inflicted on girls, women, and other minoritized groups. She's been constructed as the other to Adam, the male who's fully human. But Eve's fate encourages us to think of alternative readings and importantly, about the gender of evil. If evil is about causing or allowing grievous harms to human and non-human animals, as well as environments, then its gender as female is less obvious. Man and woman both precipitated the fall from a perfect Eden that had been created on a god-like scale into a temporal, imperfect world characterized by change pain and suffering, corruption and death. The new world that was inaugurated was one of violence. On this human scale, however, murderous violence has largely been a male inheritance, a world where Cain slaughters his brother Abel and so on for generations. God assigned Adam to name and classify nature. He is the scientist tasked with uncovering forbidden secrets. One of the greatest, one of the many greatest evils of the 20th century, the lethal violence unleashed by the creation of the atomic and nuclear bombs, implicate present day Adams eating from the tree of scientific knowledge 
usurping the creator to play God. They ate an apple that would plague humanity for all times and destroy um, all creation. And Eve's closest descendant, Mary, she has been the one protecting the weak, healing the suffering, and caring for the victims of man's sorrow and folly. Thanks very much. I hope you'll join um, us next time where I'll be talking about witches. Thank you. Bye-bye.